KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the news from Haiti, where the UN, with United States support, is authorizing a new security force made up of a thousand troops from Kenya. It's supposed to restore law and order in Port-au-Prince. Amy Willens will report. Also, Gary Young, the award-winning former columnist for The Nation, will talk about black writing and black writers and his own writing about Mandela, Obama, Trayvon Martin, and Claudette Colvin, the little-known precursor to Rosa Parks. But first, there's big news today about burgers and fries in California. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, even if it's as the junk food expert, John. (laughs) Well, listeners may recall that last year we talked about how the California legislature passed and Governor Newsom signed into law a bill that established an official state of California labor business board with the power to raise wages, especially in the fast food industry where 550,000 people work, which is of course McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell, etc. That seemed great until three days later when the industry announced it would put $200 million behind a ballot measure to overturn that law. The last time the industry tried that with Uber and Lyft drivers, the industry won the referendum and defeated a pay raise after spending hundreds of millions of dollars on lies in media, which, of course, they could have spent on raising their drivers' pay. What's the news this week about fast food workers? Well, the fast food workers and the union that has been backing them for many years, SEIU and California Labor and Progressions generally, learned a lesson from what happened to the uh, Uber and Lyft drivers. And they figured they had to get a way to persuade uh, McDonald's and Burger King at all to back off this ballot measure. And uh, by uh, getting some very even more pro-worker legislation uh, either put into law or on the verge of put into law, Uh, they got the industry to agree to uh, take its ballot measure and shove it off uh, the November or any any subsequent election. It was a huge victory. They had to give in a little. And uh, in return for that, the industry said it would not put that measure on the ballot. They had to give in on things which don't yet exist, but which had been proposed and indeed passed by the legislature. Yes. Uh, As a way of ratcheting up pressure on the industry, they got the legislature to fund uh, something that hasn't been funded for over a decade, the Industrial Welfare Commission, which uh, would have had much greater power to just raise wages on its own without any restrictions on that. So they uh, uh, gave in on that. And there was they also had a bill moving through the legislature that would have made not just the individual franchise owners, uh, Joe Blow and Jane Blow, uh, liable for uh, violations of labor standards and minimum wage pay and all of that, but also McDonald's and uh, the chains, uh, which just uh, that legislation uh, really convinced the big players, the McDonald's of this world, 
that they wanted to come to a deal to forestall that. And so using that as their arrows in uh, their quiver, the union, SEIU, representing uh, all of these fast food workers, got McDonald's et al. to back off and to withdraw their uh, proposed referendum. And does this mean there will be a wage increase for 550,000 fast food workers? Yes. The agreement stipulated that for the 550,000 fast food workers uh, in California, the wage would go from $15.50 in one fell swoop, upcoming April, to $20 an hour, which is, you know, a 30% increase. Wow. And in the budget and in the lives of fast food workers, that makes a really significant difference. So we've been talking here about burgers and fries. Does this pay increase also apply to Starbucks workers? It does indeed, uh, because those are, you know, fast drink franchises, (laughs) or whatever we want to refer to Starbucks as. Are, are every bit as covered by this as fast food. It's the, they're part of the same industry. And no matter what Howard, what Howard Schultz may say, uh, they are covered by this. So this is something you've often talked about here. State action in place of unions in industries where it's been impossible for unions to organize. Does this mean the unions don't have to organize or are going to turn away from the efforts to organize Starbucks and burger places? Oh, quite the contrary. They think it gives them, you know, a pretty good calling card to the workers. Look, we got your your wages raised by 30%. And we also established this board, which I want to talk about for a moment as well. Please, please. The compromise legislation establishes a board of nine members, two from the uh, big companies, two from individual franchise holders, two from the union, in which case this would be, I guess, SEIU, two actual rank-and-file workers, and one public member to be appointed. I'm not quite sure how, to tell you the (laughs) truth. This board will uh, have some say in uh, noting violations of the current agreement and in dealing with issues of uh, workplace safety, work standards, that sort of thing. Now, so it's not really bargaining, but it it is kind of a foot in the door. And it's the kind of arrangement that really in the private sector, we've hardly ever seen in in the United States. There were similar institutions set up during World War I and the first part of the New Deal through the uh, National Recovery Administration had vaguely similar institutions as well. But it's been 90 years since we've really had this kind of institution in the private sector. And I know SEIU, I was speaking to its president, Mary Kay Henry, is hoping that other Democratic-run states will pass such legislation establishing these boards as a way to continuing to pressure the McDonald's of this world to let its workers vote unobstructed on whether or not they uh, would like to join a union. And I understand that the California legislature has not stopped with this bill, that there's a bill to raise the wages of hospital support staffers and another one allowing striking workers to qualify for unemployment insurance. Tell us about both of those. Well, some of the unions that do represent support staff in hospitals, or even if they don't represent them, 
advocating on their behalf have been pushing for this in Sacramento. And it looks like that bill is going to pass, which will raise all of those workers' uh, wages to $25 over uh, a number of years to be phased in uh, gradually. As for the uh, unemployment insurance, well, that clearly is a very uh, topical issue because (laughs) of the Hollywood strikes in particular, which has seen 160,000 actors and 11,000 writers uh, on strike now for months. Not all of them live in California, but a, you know a majority of them live in California, and they would uh, benefit from the uh, unemployment insurance uh, that uh, this legislation now proffers to them. Now, this session of the legislature has been so much more progressive on worker issues and union issues than really anything in recent memory in the state of California, even though the Democrats have controlled the legislature for what, at least a decade now, what explains the change? Well, to begin with, the Republicans have so fallen off the map politically in California that business no longer really sees any point in contributing to them because they can't even get enough votes in either house of the legislature uh, to uh, overturn uh, a veto or anything. They're down to about uh, one quarter of uh, uh, each legislative house. So instead, business now backs more business-oriented Democrats, and most of the actual competitive legislative races end up, since we have this jungle primary thing, which means Republicans often don't make it to the final round, most of these races end up uh, between a labor-backed Democrat and a business-backed Democrat. That oversimplifies it a little, but not much. And what happened was that in 2022, the unions, the California affiliate of the Working Families Party and other groups really got behind these pro-labor progressive Democrats And they won almost all of their contests over the more business-oriented Democrats. And that accounts for this spate of progressive legislation and pro-labor legislation we're we're seeing, which also includes, now moving through the legislature, a bill that has been becalmed there for much of the decade, which would allow the legislature's own staff to unionize. Yeah, that's going too far. Yeah, really, really. I mean, I can I can I can cite various legendary union presidents in American history who went ballistic when their own staff sought to unionize. But be that as it may, the California legislature is today and we're seeing the results uh, substantially more progressive than it's been. Well, that's the news from Sacramento. Now it's time for news from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., Are the House Republicans really going to impeach Joe Biden? Well, they don't have the votes to impeach Joe Biden, which means they don't have the votes within their own ranks because their own ranks constitute a very small but real majority of of the House. Looked like it wasn't even clear that they had the votes to authorize an investigation. And Speaker Kevin McCarthy, uh, California's own Kevin McCarthy, had said, he would put it to a vote. Well, he didn't put it to a vote because he was being threatened by members of the Freedom Caucus to have to uh, stand for election again. And so he just granted them uh, one of their demands, which is to uh, have several committees in the House initiate investigations 
for, for impeachment violations, none of which have actually been specified by the House Republicans. And so, you know, uh, McCarthy caved. And uh, now those investigations, uh, such as they will be, are going to take place. I saw that Matt Getz, the one of the leaders of this move to impeach uh, Biden, dismissed Kevin McCarthy's talk of impeachment uh, earlier this week as, quote, baby steps, close quote, which were inadequate. And he threatened to force a vote on removing McCarthy as speaker, not just today, but at the beginning of every single day that Congress meets. He said, well, each day we'll have, we'll open with the prayer, the Pledge of Allegiance, and a motion to remove McCarthy. I wonder if you have any comment. Well, you know, in order to get enough votes from the wacko wing of the Republican Party, which uh, Getz is a stellar representative of, McCarthy had to agree that a single member, just one member, could raise that issue and and, and force it to a vote. The, he, and facing that, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing McCarthy uh, twisting himself into all kinds of pretzel-like positions to, uh, you know, accommodate uh, Matt Getz, uh, you know, and it, uh, I, I'm absolutely certain that the handful of semi-demi-moderate Republicans in the House are apoplectic about this, but, you know, uh, they just have never gotten together to uh, create sort of a, a, a counterweight to the Freedom Caucus. Uh, and, uh, you know, McCarthy is simply responding to uh, the greater pressure uh, on his right flank than, than there exists from his moderate flank. Well, I also want to talk once again about the polls that have been so upsetting where uh, Trump appears to be more or less tied with Biden in the popular vote. Uh, of course, we all know that the popular vote does not elect the president. It's the electors, the electoral college that elects the president. President, And of course, that is based on winner take all for each state. And we've learned that the electoral vote winner isn't always the same as the popular vote winner. You may recall 2016 as an example of this. So the challenge with these polls is to try to figure out whether there's enough votes in the swing states, in yes. the battleground states, to see wh whether you know Trump is tied with Biden in the battleground states, since we don't really have state-specific polls at this time. But uh, Nate Cohn at the New York Times has tried to figure this out, and uh, he has a pretty good argument that Trump is not doing very well in the battleground states compared to the national popular vote. He points out Trump's greatest gains are among non-white voters. These aren't huge, small numbers, as you've often said, especially Latino men. Now, where are there lots of Latino men? Well, they're in Florida. So if more Latino men in Florida vote for Trump, that's not going to affect the Electoral College at all. Similarly, in Texas, in California, if more right. Latino men vote, vote for Trump, California is still going to be a blue state. Uh, so the only important question really is what's going to happen in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, and so on, the, the, the swing states, the battleground states. So what Matt, 
uh, Nate Cohn did was first he looked at the midterms. The Democrats did lose some House seats in the midterms, mostly in New York and a couple in California. Right. These states are going to be blue no matter what in, in 2024. Then he looked at the polls to try to figure out what the polls can tell us about the battleground states as a group. He says, in the battleground states, Biden leads Trump 47 to 43, which is quite a bit different from the national polls, which are more like 45, 44, something like that. In the tipping point state, the state in 2020, which was the closest, the state that put Biden over the top was Wisconsin, which Biden carried by less than 1%. What's going to happen in, in Wisconsin? Is Wisconsin obsessed with transgender rights or woke curriculum? Wisconsin Republicans insist on making abortion rights still the center of politics in that state, even though the pro-abortion candidate for state Supreme Court, Janet Protasiewicz, won by 11%, an incredible victory in a state that's basically 50-50. And now the Republicans in the state legislature there say they will impeach her and remove her from office. How do you think that will affect Biden's vote in Wisconsin? It will obviously increase it. It will increase it. If you're worried about Latino men defecting, the one swing battleground state where that could have an effect would be Arizona. But Arizona has been increasingly trending Democratic, and so it's not a sure thing at all. Uh, and then top off all of uh, what Nate Cohn found, Biden is also, his campaign is also doing something unusual, which is even this early in the game, they're now doing major ad campaigns in the battleground states. So I think they know, uh, A, that they've got an edge there and they're determined to preserve it. And uh, B, there's no penalty for starting early. One more thing about Arizona, the Democrats will be running a Latino for the open Senate seat. We said last week, this will probably help Biden in Arizona. Ruben Gallego, yes, who is a good progressive Democrat. We still don't know what Kristen Cinema is going to do, but uh, one of the most interesting things about her is that uh, she has received almost no contributions under the level of $200, which is to say from real people. Her only money is coming from private equity, which views her as, you know, uh, a joint at the hip with themselves. And, uh, you know, so uh, I think uh, Gallego being the candidate would definitely help with what might be viewed as the possible uh, strays, you know, from the Democratic column in a state that has a significant Latino population. Finally, it's time for our regular feature, Where is Melania? At the Iowa-Iowa State football game last weekend. The Republican candidates were all present and campaigning. Trump was there at the game. A plane flew over the stadium, flying a huge banner that said, where is Melania? <laughs> <laughs> and leaflets were distributed at the game with Melania's photo under the headline missing. And it said, have you seen this woman? Please call. 561-832-2600, if found. I called that number. It's the main number for Mar-a-Lago. But the big news is that Trump reposted on his social media platform 
a piece declaring that Rick DeSantis's campaign staff was responsible for distributing those leaflets at the Iowa game. And I thought we were the ones who were bringing up uh, Melania. Do you think where's Melania can work to win Republican votes for Rick DeSantis? Uh, in a word, no, but I do think you might want to apply to the DeSantis campaign for some financial backing since you got there first. <laughs> Harold Meyerson has many good ideas. You can read more <laughs> of them at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for the bad news about Haiti. That seems to be a regular feature of this broadcast. So we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's written about the Middle East, California, and the Trump family, but she's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell Fred Voodoo. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and the former Jerusalem bureau chief for The New Yorker. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, we always remind people at the outset why we care about Haiti, not just because it's a desperately poor country. We care about Haiti because Haiti had the first slave revolution in the 1790s the largest slave uprising since Spartacus, inspired by the French Revolution, and it established the world's first black republic. It's been punished by France and the United States pretty much ever since. Right now, reports describe heavily armed criminal gangs in Port-au-Prince that have Haiti in the grip of extreme brutality. That's the words of the UN relief chief there with uh, gang-related violence continuing to force thousands from their homes and creating widespread suffering, the gangs are being challenged at some points by a citizen-led vigilante movement. What can you tell us about that? Well, that um, was a big deal about two months ago when neighborhoods were threatened that had not felt threatened before by this gang violence and people there organized themselves in brigades neighborhood brigades, which is something that the gangs have claimed they are, but they don't seem to be. They have expanded beyond neighborhoods. So these neighborhood brigades would uh, capture people they thought were gang members and uh, more extreme violence ensued. Um, and sometimes they were gang members. And for about a, a week after this movement began, the gang sort of laid low, uh, moved back a little bit, retreated. But now they're back in force. And it was predicted by most people that when this citizens movement began, the gangs would just reinforce themselves and in anger and revenge come forward much more strongly. And indeed, that is what happened. There are now more than 200,000 people who have been made internal refugees by these gangs. You write at thenation.com that despite the current disastrous situation in Haiti, plenty of money can be made by controlling Haiti. Please explain. Despite the current situation, and in fact, the current situation is one example of a fight over 
money. Yeah, there's so much money that can be made. We think of it as the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere because that is what is drummed into us by the news media. And believe me, Haitians get very incensed when they hear poorest country in the hemisphere. It just makes them tear their hair out. But um, it is a poor country, but with a lot of resources. And and even in, in poverty, you can make money. So first of all, if you control one industry in Haiti, you can make money. So if you control all the cement in the country, that means you control all of the construction in the com- country, and therefore it's very lucrative. So there are fights over that kind of control. The state is almost entirely privatized, so you can run communications networks and providers. You can run the state energy system. That's one of the big fights at the heart of the the battles that you're seeing with the gangs. You can charge taxes at the ports if you run the ports and at customs, and it goes right into your own pockets, not into the nation's coffers. Similarly, uh, the country's formerly gigantic freewheeling produce markets and meat markets If you uh, can tax those people at the uh, opening to the market, you can make a huge amount of money. The Duvalier dictatorship made a huge amount of money that way for themselves. Uh, You can import contraband like weapons and drugs and exact huge fees for the service. You can control mining in the countryside, which includes gold, silver, copper, and iridium. These are not huge mines like you see in the United States or Africa, but they produce very valuable ore. You can run the sugar business, the breweries, the lottery system is gigantic. So these people have made a ton of money in Haiti. And these are some of the people who are running the gangs and the the top gangsters make money from these businessmen. It's called in Haiti, the business mafia who run them and the political mafia, you might call it that too, who work with the business people to control the country. Well, the news last week was that Kenya is volunteering to send forces to Haiti and that the United States is sponsoring a resolution at the UN to authorize that. They're talking about a thousand Kenyan police officers who would try to restore law and order and protect key installations, along with several hundred additional officers or soldiers from other Caribbean countries. Thousand seems to be not very many. In 1994, I read, the intervention force led by the United States had 21,000 soldiers. Uh, How did that work out? (laughs) That didn't work out so well because what you're seeing now is partly the heritage from from that moment. But 1,000 Kenyan soldiers is like it's an embarrassing face-saving move by the Biden administration to say, you know, we can keep deporting Haitian refugees into Haiti, which we've asked all American citizens to leave as soon as possible. Literally those words, as soon as possible. Um, But we can keep deporting Haitians into Haiti and we'll only send a thousand Kenyan troops to protect the Haitian population. I mean, it's ridiculous. And plus the Kenyan police don't have a great reputation. They are not the most honorable, upright, professional police in the world. They may be great, who knows, but they haven't had a great record in Kenya. They're responsible for a lot of human rights violations. They're one of the problems of the UN mission that sent the 20,000 or so peacekeeping troops into Haiti was that they were responsible for all sorts of abuses, as well as keeping whatever peace was thought to be necessary by this same business mafia. 
U.S. officials, I'm reading from a news report now, say they are focused on not repeating the mistakes made in previous stabilization missions in Haiti. The Biden administration does not want the multinational force to engage in constant firefights with the gangs, but rather to ensure humanitarian aid can safely be sent to the nation. Will that work? No, the, the gangs basically control the ports. There are some private, very contrabandy ports that the gangs maybe don't control. But basically, they control all transit through the capital, going out and into the capital. They control some of the ports. You can't move humanitarian aid. They'll take your truck away. They take trucks away. The problem is the gangs are really powerful now. That's why the Biden administration doesn't want to send people in. They could die. They could be hanged like in Somalia. It's a very big fear that it would look like Somalia because these gangs have super assault weapons. They have now some tanks that they've uh, carjacked from the Haitian National Police. They have the material to provide a very robust response to an, a multinational force. And so we'd rather send in the cannon fodder of a thousand Kenyan troops then try anything else. And we have not come up with any political solution that we can present to the Haitians as a plausible way out of this problem. And we have been responsible for a lot of political solutions, most of them not good. We have not just stepped away from the table. When we've participated at the table, we've participated basically, as far as I can see, on behalf of what is the continuing problem. The other news this week is that a Colombian ex-soldier pleaded guilty to conspiracy in the murder of Haitian President Jovenel Moise in 2021. This uh, guy will cooperate with U.S. authorities, may become a valuable witness against uh, other defendants who go on trial. I understand there are now 11 people have been charged in Florida, Haiti, and Colombia in an FBI-led investigation. What's your comment on that? I don't have personal sources who told me the truth. <laughs> but I feel like these people who are being charged and jailed, so there's also a Haitian businessman who's been given a life sentence in Miami for the killing of Jovenel Moise. Not that he did pull the trigger himself, but that he was part of the plot. I feel like the more people who are put on trial for the assassination of Jovenel Moise, the farther away we're getting from the mastermind of the assassination of Jovenel Moise. And I feel like I, I worry about the U.S. government's involvement in prosecuting the case because I worry that the prosecutors are protecting themselves in this case. And I worry that on the morning of Jovenel Moise's assassination, when they shouted, Everybody step back. This is a DEA operation. And we all laughed and said, that's just a cover up for a Haitian led thing. Maybe there was some truth to that. You know, we just don't know what it was. And these guys are going to give evidence to the US. So I always say it's a little bit like when Schwarzenegger was accused of having, uh, you know, assaulted various women during his campaign for the governorship of California. And he said, when I am elected, I will look into this matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I worry about that. I worry about U.S. involvement. 
at some level. I'm not talking about the Biden administration, obviously. So you've already referred to the Haiti travel advisory the U.S. Department of State issued on July 27th. Do not travel to Haiti due to kidnapping, crime, civil unrest, and a poor health care infrastructure. Biden wants Americans to leave Haiti. What does he want Haitians in America to do? Go back. <laughs> he wants them to go back. And they, at the border, they just rounded people up, sometimes in shackles, or so I hear, and uh, put them on planes and sent them back to Haiti. How many people has Biden sent back to Haiti? I think it's 22,000. It's uh, lightened up recently. He stopped sending quite so many every month. But, you know, this these people are often people who've flown into Brazil, somehow gotten the money to get a, an airplane ticket to Brazil, have worked in Brazil, have made some money and have taken a trek with their families, their children, all the way to the border with Texas. They haven't been in Haiti maybe for five years, 10 years. And then they get rounded up, as we've seen in the photographs, sometimes not in the most humanitarian ways, and put on planes and sent back to Haiti without so much as a buy your leave or some kind of document saying why they were fleeing in the first place. So Biden has expelled over 20,000 Haitian refugees. How does that compare with Trump? Oh, it's much more. It's much more than the, the last three American presidents put together. Well, there's one piece of Haiti news in the United States that's not terrible. Harvard has a new president, Claudine Gay, a woman whose parents are immigrants from Haiti. A Haitian student at Harvard wrote in the Crimson, quote, for the first time, the president of Harvard University does not descend from generations of whiteness, but from the revolutionaries of Haiti who successfully won their freedom and stood as the largest challenge to the global colonial order. And then she wrote, my mother has begun to speak of Claudine Gray as though she were a distant cousin. What does this tell us? Well, it makes me so happy on so many levels, of course, and I'm I love that Haitians are so fiercely nationalistic about this kind of thing. So Claudine Gay is, is a wonderful thing. Her cousin, Roxanne Gay, is a known, very well-known writer in the United States about politics and feminism. I wanted to mention a couple of other Haitian Americans. So Vladimir Dutier, known as Vlad, is uh, the anchor of CBS Morning News, extremely popular. Patrick Gaspar, known as Patrick Gaspard, his Haitian parents uh, moved to New York when he was three. Um, he's the former ambassador to South Africa and the director, he's the former director of White House, the White House Office of Political Affairs under Obama. And he's now head of the Center for American Progress, a think tank in Washington. There is someone you may all have heard of, Naomi Osaka, who you think is Japanese, but actually for Haitians, she has Haitian because her mother is half Haitian, so she's Haitian. There's Karine Jean-Pierre, whose parents were both Haitian, the White House spokesman. And uh, Raoul Peck, the fabled documentary director, is also a Haitian living in Paris now. But what this speaks to, to me, not only is, of course, the enormous capacity of the Haitian nation, which is no surprise but also of the terrible brain drain that has really been sucking Haiti dry of its human capacity. Again, I have to find a little bit of fault with Biden, who is sending back 
you know, 20,000 Haitian migrants. And then he's also offering a special program to Haitians who have passports and uh, a sponsor in the U.S., thus contacts in the U.S., to leave Haiti for the next two years if they can get their passports through the U.S. consulate and get the okay. So while he's sending back all these poor people who have just been struggling to get out of Haiti and out of the chaos, he's sending word to Haitians of, of some means and some ability who've proven themselves already to leave Haiti. That could be any of these people we just spoke about. Could be the parents of these wonderful Haitian contributors to American society. They could be contributing their abilities to Haiti in the future. Amy Willens, read her reporting and analysis about Haiti at thenation.com. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Welcome, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Gary Young about our politics from Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter. He's a longtime Guardian reporter and columnist, now professor of sociology at the University of Manchester, a writer for the New York Review, a member of the Nation Editorial Board, and a Type Media Fellow. And this year, he was awarded the Orwell Prize. He's written several books, including the unforgettable Another Day in the Death of America. It's about 10 young people killed by guns on one day in America. Now he's got a new book out. It's called Dispatches from the Diaspora, From Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter. We reached him today at home in London. Gary Young, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, you open your new book on the morning of South Africa's first democratic election, April 26, 1994. Where were you that morning and what were you doing there? I was in Soweto. I was staying with a family and we were going to vote. And um, this was my big break. I was 25 when I happened. The day before I had filed the piece that would get me my job, which was about following Mandela on his campaign trail in the first democratic elections in 94. But I had yet to hear what they thought of the piece. And so I went to vote with the family, which was an incredibly, it was moving in ways that were less predictable. There was this mist on the ground that was kind of burning off. And all you could see was people's feet. It was very quiet. They knew it was going to be a long day. People were wearing their Sunday best, but it was very quiet. One thinks of history being made in these big, tumultuous, fireworky kind of ways, but this was, it was workaday history. Let's go make history, you know. And then they lined up at the polls. I think our wait was about three, four hours, which wasn't bad. And then when I got back, this is before, certainly before I had a cell phone, I managed to get a connection through a neighbor to log in. And then I see that my piece has gone down well at The Guardian. And I get these attaboys and it goes up the chain to the editor. And kind of, I just have this real feeling of relief that this thing that I'd been sent to do had been done. 
had it been your ambition to be the Guardian correspondent in South Africa? No, it had been my. It had actually been my ambition to be a correspondent in Moscow. It had been my ambition. I studied French and Russian uh, at university. I was very interested in Russian history, so that hadn't been my ambition. And even if it had been, I wouldn't have imagined I would have got there so quickly. But I had been involved in anti-apartheid politics since the age of 15, 16. I'd picketed the South African embassy in London with my mum, age 17. And so to find myself with this ringside seat, I ended up kind of um, in the middle of Mandela's entourage with his bodyguards for much of the campaign just hanging out with his bodyguards. And so I was right out close. I mean, about as close as you can get without getting shot by his bodyguards, really. <laughs> uh, and um, so to have that proximity, to be that young, to witness it in that way, I wouldn't have even guessed that six months earlier. You say you were warned by mentors early on in your career not to become too identified as a writer on black people. Looks like you did not take that advice. I did not take that advice. I thought that advice was was well-meaning and odd. I understood I did understand what they were saying. They would say you will be pigeonholed. It was always in the passive voice. It was always somebody else was going to do it. Without even knowing it, what they were saying is that this is not a treasured category, Black people. And you are not from a treasured category. And so if you do this, people are going to think that's all you can do. You know, my feeling was twofold. Was Firstly, is, is this because Black issues are covered so well by so many people <laughs> that you don't want another one? Is it because is this something I don't write about well? Or... You know, is there something else going on here? And then the other thing that people would often say is, if it wasn't that, it was just stick to the black stuff. That's all you can do. So what's your advice today to young black writers who don't want to write about being black? My advice to young black people is write about the things that you're passionate about. If that's race, great. If it's finance or fashion or travel or sport, that's great too, because you know what? You're still going to be black. You're still going to bring your race to it. You're going to bring your experiences to it. One of the features of this book is, is your profiles of truly amazing Angela Davis, Maya Angelou. I think my favorite single piece in the whole book is about a, a person most people don't even know about, Claudette Colvin. As a historian, I knew who she was. But the fact that you were able to find Claudette Colvin is, is kind of miraculous. But first of all, explain who she is, why she's important, and why she's been left out of a lot of Black history. Claudette Colvin, she's literally a footnote in history. Before Rosa Parks was thrown off the bus, exactly. Claudette Colvin was thrown off yeah. the bus. Now, Claudette was a 15-year-old girl in Montgomery, Alabama, who'd been involved in um, campaigning work, who was thrown off the bus and who they had started to go with, the movement had started to go with. She has letters from saying, you know, we're, we're, we're right there, we're behind you. She's, she's kind of some, she's beginning to get known. 
Claudette is from the wrong part of town. Uh, she's dark skinned. She gets pregnant. She's not married. And they decide, you know what? We'll wait. We'll wait for the right person. And uh, I remember during my first book, which is about uh, tracing the route of the Freedom Riders, which I, I went uh, on the route of the Freedom Riders on a Greyhound bus from DC to New Orleans, reading these books and arriving in Montgomery and Claudette kept coming up in these books. So I kind of asked around. That was in 97 and it took two years to kind of find her. Uh, she was working as a, a, a nurse's aide in uh, the Bronx. And um, to interview her, you know, it was a fascinating interview in which she said, you know, I don't really blame them for not going with me. It would have been horrible. But they literally, they well, not literally, but they just dropped me. And nobody would employ me because I was that girl um, who had done that. I couldn't kind of, um, you know, I couldn't make any kind of comeback. And so they just kind of, you know, they they wrote me out. And um, I had a wonderful conversation with Claudette and we got very well. We went out for dinner. We got quite kind of togged up. We had a, we had a lovely evening as well as the interview. And it, it, gave, it gave an opportunity to kind of tell that story in, in a different way and to look at how we understand history that you get this impression the way they tell the story of Rosa Parks that God bless her if she just had a better pair of shoes there would have been no civil rights movement because she <laughs> would have been fine standing up and the, the kind of the light of history just shone on this woman in this moment you don't learn that Rosa Parks was a, a feminist and an activist and a, uh, someone who actually never believed in nonviolence and that she had trouble with the male-dominated religious hierarchies in Montgomery at the time. You, you don't really know any of it. So she is traduced by this history too. And, you know, with Claudette, you really get a sense of this thing being a, a collective political struggle where the, the beneficiaries weren't the people who did the boycotts. Like, by and large. Of course, they were the beneficiaries in a range of ways. They got to sit where they went on a bus. It was the beginning of desegregation and so on. But the Black working class, and that's how the, the piece ends, was her saying, if you want to put it in a museum, give the victory to my children and my grandchildren. We still don't have the things that we, that we demanded. Of course, one of the big things you covered in your years as Guardian correspondent in the United States was... Obama's election, Obama's presidency. You say your son was born in 2007, the weekend when Obama declared his candidacy. And you say when your son was four, a white friend his age told him, you're black. And he looked to you. And what did you tell him? He said, yeah, just like the president. I tell that story because on the one hand, it speaks to the symbolic value that there was of having a, a black president. But in that moment, it's also true that the gap between black and white was growing, that my son's life chances in terms of income, in terms of wealth, in terms of education, and this white four-year-old's life chances 
actually were growing further and further apart under Obama. Now, some of that's about the world that he inherited, of course. The, the, he came in in the middle of the financial crash. We can talk about, you know, what the Republicans did and didn't let him do. But ultimately, it is not really possible to say beyond the symbolic value, which is important, that things got a whole lot better for black people under Obama. Some good things happened. And it's also, there's no doubt that African-Americans felt better about being American with him in the White House. But materially, uh, the gap between black and white in a range of ways grew. That's a contradiction that one has to kind of come to terms with. And another thing that happened during the Obama years, which you covered, was the killing of Trayvon Martin, 17 years old, killed in Florida in 2012, walking down the street. Obama said at the time, quote, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Unforgettable line you quoted in the book. What does it mean to you? Well, it's true. No other president so far could say that. And it illustrates the limits of his symbolic value, that with Obama, you could prove that a black man could be elected to the White House. With Trayvon, it was still clear that a black boy, teenager, could not walk down the street in his own neighborhood without fear of being murdered, effectively. Because Obama said, you know, they will look at us differently if I won. I don't think that George Zimmerman looked at Trayvon and thought, here comes a future president of America. Mm. And so while they maybe uh, looked at him differently, they didn't really look at race and racism differently. And if we look at what comes after Obama in terms of Trump and where we are now, in a sense, his very existence in that job was provocation enough. You end your book with your last column for The Guardian, January 2020. It was four days after Trump's attempted insurrection, a time in Britain, you write, when racism, cynicism, and intolerance were on the rise. The piece opens by recalling a time in the early 70s with you as a kid and your mother, barely 30, dancing you around the living room. What was that about? There's a song by Bob and Marcia called Young, Gifted and Blank. And my mum used to my feet on hers and dance around and say, oh, they're playing our song. My mum was from Barbados. She came to Britain in 62. She was a nurse and she became a teacher. At that point in the early 70s, racism was on the rise. The economy was in the tank. And this was this kind of um, optimism, this kind of hopefulness that she had for us, which was uh, like, a, like a natural resource, really. And she, she would raise us with an understanding that, look, the world you're going to occupy, it doesn't exist yet. The, the plans that they have for you in this world are inadequate for you. So, you, you know you are going to have to create your own you because the things that they have in store for you won't do. And it was an inevitability about it. And my mother died when she was 44 and I was mm. 19. So she never saw 
you know, I was I was just ending my first year at university. But as I point out in that piece, that parental encouragement and the hard work that I did put in in itself wouldn't have been enough. That I was the beneficiary of a series of movements, uprisings in Britain during the mid 80s, which prompted the Guardian to create a bursary scheme for journalists, which was I got. Um, please please ex- explain for the Americans, what is a bursary scheme? Okay, so the Guardian, uh, after the uprisings in uh, the early and mid-80s in British cities, ra- racial uprisings, the Guardian decided that they were writing a lot about Black people, but there were none in any of the newsrooms. And so they decided to invest in six places each year for black people to study at journalism college. There was no job at the end of it, but there was, um, the Guardian is a charity owned by the Scott Trust. And so this was the Scott Trust saying, this is a good thing that we think we should do. And uh, I was one of the first beneficiaries of that. There was the murder of a young man, Stephen Lawrence in Britain, which prompted the McPherson report. The McPherson report, an equivalent would be the Kerner report in America following the Newark, uh, the uprisings in Newark and elsewhere. It was a landmark report which shifted the conversation about institutional racism. The year that report comes out, that's the year that, that's the year my book comes out. It's the year I get my column. It's the year Steve McQueen who did uh, 12 Years a Slave and Small Acts. That's the year he wins the Turner Prize. It's the year that White Teeth, Zadie Smith's first novel comes out. So I've been, as well as that parental support, as well as the effort, it needed these moments of collective struggle to actually create the space where I could write a book like this. Gary Young, he'll be talking about his new book, Dispatches from the Diaspora, in Manhattan at NYU on September 20th, in LA at USC on September 26th, and in Charleston on November 12th. Gary, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. A Minnesota court has ordered a local meat processing company to pay a $300,000 fine for violating state child labor laws. The Minnesota Department of Labor investigation of the Downs Food Company outside Mankato found that the company employed at least eight children between the ages of 14 and 17 to operate meat processing equipment, violating state child labor laws. One of them was only 13 years old when they were hired. The company required that they do hazardous work, such as operating meat grinders, forklifts, and ovens, and that they work during overnight shifts. Minnesota law prohibits employers from employing minors, that is children under 18, in hazardous occupations, from having them work after 9 p.m., They're not allowed to work more than eight hours a day. They're not allowed to work more than 40 hours a week. The company argued that the kids looked like they were older than 18. So the state required that the company hire a compliance specialist to train management in how to determine the age of young job applicants. 
My suggestion would be ask them for government-issued ID with their birth dates. Republican legislators in at least 14 states, including Minnesota, have pushed to weaken child labor regulations over the past two years, and some states have actually done it. In Arkansas, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed legislation removing requirements for age verification for employees under 16. In Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law a measure expanding the hours of employment during the school year for teens under 16 and allowing 16 and 17 year olds to work under hazardous conditions. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. 